0: To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss.
1: What meditation does, it confronts you with your with your mind. You know, you try and watch your breath. You know, the mindfulness of breathing practice. All you're trying to do is, you know, just stay with your breath. If you stay with your breath for long enough, you have a transcendental experience, no doubt about it. Um, it's not it's not theoretically difficult. It's not even experientially difficult. It's just that Your mind can't stay with it very often.
0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Balancing Acts. In this conversation, I talk with ordained Buddhist, Maitra Bandhu has been living in the Buddhist residential community above the LBC, the London Buddhist Centre, since 1987. He was ordained into the Tree Ratna Buddhist Order in 1990 and given the name Maitrebandu. Since then, he's uh, lived and worked at the LBC teaching Buddhism and meditation. He's written three books on Buddhism and as a poet, he's won the Keith Shelley Prize, the Basil Bunting Award and the Jeffrey Derma Prize. He's also published numerous articles exploring the relationship between spiritual life and poetry. Hi, this is Steve Whiteley, comedian, actor, filmmaker and writer, all round ADHD creative. And welcome to my new podcast, Balancing Acts, where I talk to an array of creatives ranging from comedians, actors, directors, all sorts. And we talk about how they find a sense of balance or not between their creative lives and their everyday lives and how that has an impact on their mental health and beyond. So this episode is slightly different. Although Maitre Bandhu is a poet, I think he would safely say himself he doesn't work full-time as a, a performer, or in the creative industries, but he is an ordained Buddhist, so I think he has plenty to say on balance. We dive into how he balances contemplation and poetry with what he would consider to be duty and work, and I guess in that respect, um, that would be spreading the word of the Dharma, which is the teachings of the Buddha and I guess without wanting to sound dramatic, helping people become awake through teaching them meditation mindfulness uh, and so forth but we t- we go into that further yeah this is a subject close to my heart personally I found meditation for me has been a game changer it's definitely helped with my creativity it's also helped counterbalance again you know bouts of anxiety or depression so it was an honor to have Maitra Bandhu on the podcast and for him really to draw the curtains back and give an idea of, of what it's like being an ordained Buddhist living in London at an all-male Buddhist community where I used to live as well for a short period of time until they kicked me out. No, they didn't kick me out. Um, I chose to leave of my own accord. I went straight from there to the Edinburgh Fringe Festival, but we talk more about that a bit later. Okay, hope you enjoy it. I think we should kick off on the subject of us being ex-flatmates. Oh, yeah. <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah.
0: yeah what, we, I should just say we're currently... We're recording in much in your in your bedroom, in the London Buddhist community. I think it would be a good idea for you to explain sort of the setup of this, because... Obviously, I, I lived with you uh, for, I think, I think it was just under six months in 2016. Yeah. And yeah. at the time, I was telling friends that I was living in this London Buddhist community and they thought I'd gone mad. Yeah, yeah. And and the initial sort of, I guess, perception is that I'd wandered off in robes and sandals yeah. and then yeah. left, my, left, left my everyday life. So do you want to explain, I guess, what what the setup is here? and
1: Yeah, it's not tr- easy to explain, is it? Because it's, it's so countercultural on one hand and it's so kind of unusual like some people ask me you know oh you must be a priest or are you a monk and i'm not a priest i'm not a monk but i'm not a layman either i'm a buddhist i'm a i've committed my life to buddhism so what what we're doing here at the buddhist center you know we've got this community and you know the idea of a spiritual community you know they, when you were here there was eight of us something, nine of us uh, living here what the, the idea of it is how do you live a full-time buddhist life Never, the whole idea, of whether you're a monk or not, is kind of a bit irrelevant. What you're trying to do, what the metaphor of the monk is, is living a full-time uh, spiritual life, a full, a life completely devoted to meaning and value that explored through Buddhist practice. So eight of us, nine of us, I think there's ten of us now, living together, eating together, meditating together, becoming friends with each other. Yeah, it's a kind of new way of living in a way, bit like a commune, but not not with a kind of uh, kind of new agey the
0: thing about that but what's remarkable as well is that you have some people who have full-time jobs you've had yeah yeah doctors in here and psychologists who have you know you know a real sort of full-on career yeah but yet they also come back and and they live in this community and they make time to meditate and, and work on their practice
1: well like Parambandu who's set up the community with me you know he's a consultant psychiatrist I've hardly ever had a decent, done a decent day's work in my life. (laughs) You know, I came from art school, which is hardly a decent day's work. But I live and work at the Buddhist center and we set up a community together. You know, someone who's a consultant psychiatrist and all the work that that involves and then me living and working here.
0: So take me back then. How did you get into Buddhism? Was was there a turning point in your life like, yes, this is this is for me. This is what I want to do.
1: There was really. I was. I was at art school at Goldsmiths Art School. I was at art school with Damien Hurst and Sarah Luke was, was in my year. Damien Hurst was the year after me. Marcus Harvey was in the year above. He was the one who did the Myra Hindley, famous Myra Hindley painting with children's handprints. Um, great guy, actually. Uh, Marcus Harvey, very funny, <laughs> uh, very very funny. Um, so I was at art school. I'd come from a small town in Warwickshire. I'd come to art school. I was very ambitious. Uh, also very shy as a person came along living in London for the first time in my life I did really badly at art school I got very unhappy looking back on it I'd, I'd say I was very depressed art school is very competitive environment actually weirdly everyone had their sights on the galleries and many of them have now been extremely successful Damien being the most successful and you know I got to know Damien a bit when I was there I was just like really unhappy and I couldn't work out why I was unhappy. I had this instinct that there must be more to life. I wasn't any good at this kind of smoothing with the tutors. I couldn't sell myself in that way. I was very committed to art, but I couldn't, I couldn't market myself. And that was mainly, you know, unconfidence and shyness on my part, you know. A friend of mine was, started going along to the Buddhist centre. She said to me, well, why don't you come along? I had this weird experience of foreboding, I think the strongest experience of foreboding I've ever had, where I, I didn't know anything about Buddhism. I wasn't interested in Buddhism. I remember when I was young, reading a tiny pamphlet on Buddhism, and it said, the first thing you need to be to be a Buddhist is celibate. And I thought, well, I ain't going to do that. Be <laughs> <laughs> close, you know, close the book, you know. So I wasn't interested in Buddhism. I didn't know anything about it. But I had this weird feeling that if I go to the Buddhist centre, my life will change forever. So I put it off for a few days. And it was in a November, it was about 1985... Uh, I was 25, uh, I was at art school, I was living in a squat, I remember us cycling over in the snow uh, to Bethnal Green from uh, Brixton, where I was living, near the art school. I went into the, I went to the Buddhist, I went into the shrine room, and this great big gold image of the Buddha in the shrine room, and I remember thinking, how ridiculous, how then, how Victorian, you know, I was doing, I was at art school, so we were interested in you know, doing something with burnt rubber tyres, and I remember a friend of mine dragging a pig's head around a room all day. That's what art was in my mind, not golden figures, you know. How embarrassing, I thought. Weirdly, I also thought, how incredible, how wonderful. I had that double thing, how embarrassing and how wonderful. And then I was taught the mindfulness of breathing practice, very simple meditation practice, you concentrate on your breath. And um, no Buddhism involved in that teaching explicitly. I taught that practice and I thought I knew immediately intuitively and immediately, that I, I was a Buddhist, I'd always been a Buddhist, and I always would be a Buddhist, and I knew it would be difficult for me. And I knew those difficulties wouldn't be my... There wouldn't be difficulties of Buddhism, there'd be difficulties that I'd be facing.
0: So when you say you knew you were a Buddhist... Yeah. ..how would you describe, or how would you classify what? What is a Buddhist?
1: I'm never quite sure.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I should know by now. I've been being a Buddhist for 30 years. Because you're you're... Within Buddhism, there's different sects, isn't there? And you're, yeah, you're yeah. part of Tree Ratna movement. Yeah, yeah. So, is... would it be easier to describe what the Tree Ratna movement is in comparison to other schools of Buddhism?
1: Well, I've never really looked at other schools of Buddhism. What well, I think, I mean, I've, never, I've never, I'm not terribly interested in Buddhism <laughs> in a certain way. <laughs> the professions from a Buddhist. <laughs> yes. Um, in the sense of Buddhism as a kind of subject. You know who cares? In a way, I mean that in a nice way. <laughs> um I'm, I'm not interested in Buddhist history. I'm not Buddhist, interested in Buddhist culture particularly. I sort of often think I should be, but and many of my friends are, but I'm not particularly. Right. What I'm interested in, is, and this sounds a bit grand and a bit pretentious, but what I'm interested in is life. <laughs> and I think that's the only thing of interest. What is life for? What am I here for? What? What? What is? Where is meaning to be find, found? Where is value to be found? What? what it's about, what's it all about. Those kind of inchoate questions that you ask yourself when you're young, they really bothered me. You know, I was unhappy. Why was I unhappy? And what was I supposed to be doing exactly? You know, I was, and I thought art was the answer to that. I thought creativity was the answer. To that. Weirdly, that is part of the answer, but it it wasn't enough of the art. It wasn't enough. It was just what I did in the studio. How did I make my life into art, if you, if you said to me? And not in some sort of weird goldsmiths kind of um, situational art, wasn't it? you know, I don't, don't have much sympathy for. But what what we do in here, weirdly, in a, in a way that I can never quite express, I was taught the mindfulness of breathing, practice meditation, having that golden Buddha figure. I I seem to know this is what we're doing here. We're we're here to discover within consciousness a consciousness that goes beyond ourselves, but is not separate from ourselves. So I, I never believed in God. I've always thought that was frankly nonsense. I, I also really don't like this new kind of embattled secularism that's just nonsense as well. I, there's nothing secular about life. You know, you try falling in love, it doesn't feel like a secular experience. You dream, it's not a secular experience. You have any kind of strong aesthetic experience, it doesn't feel secular. I've never liked that kind of fight between the secular, the divine and the secular. Buddhism doesn't have that. It doesn't have a secular, it doesn't have a divine. It has something that goes beyond both. So what I felt I I met, and it was I met it intuitively, not literally, was here's a vision of my life, and that's what my life has always been trying to struggle towards. It's not like Buddhism is like, I don't know, a kind of app that you download. It Buddhism is trying to say, actually this is what you're really about, isn't it? You're like an acorn that wants to become an oak tree. And that if you don't become an oak tree, you feel frustrated. And if you're not growing, you feel like you're dying almost. That's what I saw as a vision of human growth to a potential that was beyond my imagination, but which the seeds of it I already had.
0: Interesting. So in order to reach that goal, what do you need to do or what do you do, I guess, on a daily or weekly basis Basis, what's what does that practice consist of? I guess many people who might not be yeah. familiar with Buddhism, uh, meditation would automatically jump out to them, yeah. So, yeah. Is, is meditation that's a big part, obviously, yeah. yeah.
1: And, and it's something that one can one should learn to do straight away if you can, yeah. I mean, I was rubbish at it, I used to just fall asleep, <laughs> you know. I used to cycle from my squat in Brixton do an almost forward roll into the shrine room because I was always late. Yeah. And they'd ring the bell to start meditation and I'd start falling asleep because I was either really wired and like on it or I was a bit, or I was depressed and hiding that or I was asleep. Yeah. You know, I just didn't have a middle range, not at all. So I just, you know, turn up to the Buddhist center. Falls. So I hadn't, I got nothing from meditation at first at all. So I would say that the the first thing that Buddhism is trying to, Teach you is to take responsibility for your mind. that's actually a really tough call. It's very difficult but Buddhism says that mind precedes world that the world I experience is very largely predicated on my mind. It's a, a resp- an echo a rhyme of my mind. It's not literally created by my mind but it's like a rhyme for my mind <laughs> to talk to be a bit political. what we tend to think is that world creates mind. So I'm a really chilled out people but person, but people keep stressing me out. I'm a really nice guy, but my boss is a nightmare, and I keep, you know, you know, I, you know, want to kill him. We think that the world creates our mind. Buddhism is saying actually no, the world you experience is created by your mind. So the first thing you need to do is really say this is me in a bad mood. This is me in a hateful state of mind. This is my mind. It's not caused from something outside of me. I know it feels like that, and tell you what, I know I won't really want to blame. People and I want to feel a victim of people, or I want to blame myself. But actually, I've got to take responsibility for my mind. I need to say, these are the states of mind I get into. How am I going to work with that? And that's what Buddhism starts with. How are you going? To, you have got to work with your mind. The only way you can take that seriously is to say, actually, this is my mind. This is not caused from outside. It's not caused by men being a nightmare or women being a nightmare or the government or Brexit. It's caught, you know, you can work with your mind. So you have to take ownership of that. And then meditation and all the Buddhist practices are starting with, OK, so let's let's
0: get to know your mind. Let's change it. OK, so how do you do that then? How do you start to know your mind then? Well,
1: you know, w- one way of doing that is to start learning to meditate. You know, it's a classic okay. way because yeah. what, what meditation does, is it confronts you with your with your mind you know you try and watch your breath you know the mindfulness of breathing practice all you're trying to do is you know just stay with your breath if you stay with your breath for long enough you have a transcendental experience no doubt about it Um, it's not it's not theoretically difficult it's not even experientially difficult it's just that your mind can't stay with it very often and what you notice is i can't even i remember teaching a ceo recently of a big you know advertising executive And he was really shocked. I said, look, I just want you to count, breathe in, breathe out, and count to 10. One, breathe in, breathe out, count one. Breathe in, breathe out, count two. All the way up to 10. When you get to 10, start again at one. He was really shocked. He said, I can't even do that. Can't even do that. I can't even get to 10. I'm, you know, he's a big CEO of a big company that does really complex things and has massive budgets. He couldn't even count to 10 and watch his breath.
0: Yeah.
1: And that, do you see how that confronts you with the issue of your mind? Yeah. How are you going to work with that? Yeah.
0: I want to briefly touch upon your name. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, (laughs) One of the things that I found hardest when I moved in here. With you guys, you know, to the community, was everybody's names. <laughs> yeah. I couldn't remember. I've literally for a month. I was like, "What?" You know what? Yeah. It was really confusing for me, yeah. and uh, the names are very long. And I just wondered, like, what, yeah. what happens when they go on a first date? You know, <laughs> I mean, how? How do they? <laughs> At my age, I'm afraid
1: those days are over. But
0: <laughs> <laughs> I don't believe you, Sly Fox. Um, can you explain then to to somebody who may not be familiar with Buddhism? What's the process from, you know, I guess someone like me, Steve Whiteley, who decides he wants to be ordained. What does it mean to be ordained? Because, again, you know, looking back when I first started to get into Buddhism and I'm still sort of pretty new to it in that respect... My idea of someone being ordained would be some um, with a shaved head and robes, like yeah, a mon- cool. an ordained monk yeah, living yeah. in the temple or something like that. Yeah, yeah. And obviously that's that's not the case. No. You know, you're a very modern man and you have blazers <laughs> and you black framed glasses. <laughs> uh, you look like that CEO uh, advertising agency. That could be you. What is that process? And when someone does become ordained, they I, they... I mean, you can explain that they get given these names. Yeah. What does that mean? What does your name mean? Yeah, um, yeah. What is that process? It's quite interesting because, you know, the cafe I go
1: to just across the park there, they want, you know, they say, can I have a name? And I, and I say, it well, it's a bit long, you know, so <laughs> now I just say, let's just write M. Yeah. <laughs> um, or as I say, my, my name's Mitre Bandu, I'll spell that for you, M-A-I. You know, I, it's all like running. So um, we, we, ad- we identify very strongly with our name, don't we? It becomes a... A symbol for who we are. So what, what ordination means is I'm going to put my life, as much as I can, I'm going to have my life an expression of a commitment to meaning and value and transcendental meaning and value, whatever that transcendental means. I'm going to become, I'm going to commit myself to Buddhism. That's what ordination means, is that you dedicate your life to a Buddhist vision. Difficult to kind of get a sense of that because it's not like I walk, walk around thinking Buddhisty things, in a sense, very interested in Buddhism yeah. as, a, as a subject. It's much more like I'm saying meaning and value needs to be the heart of my life, and that my name symbolizes that. Being given a name, very, very strong experience being given a name, and your name represents you at your best. It represent your name is a practice in itself. So Maitreya means the kindly one, uh, the loving one, the kindly one. Bandu means friend. It's actually the Sanskrit root of the word brother. You can hear the relationship Bandu and brother. Uh, it means literally brother or friend like a brother. And the metaphor there is that if someone's your brother, you can't. they can't not be your brother. So it's that kind of friend, uh, a friend that's like a, a kin, that's like a brother or a sister, really, that will, you can, will never leave you. So it means kindly friend or friendly friend or something like that. And that's something to live up to. I mean, my own teacher, Bante Sangratu, he said, you can't always be happy. I think happiness is often over-egged, but you can always be friendly, um, even if you're not in a good state. You could be friendly. You don't have to be unfriendly. You feel like you have to be sometimes, but you don't have to be. You never have to be unfriendly. So that means I'm trying to live up to that name. I remember once somebody... I was in a really bad mood. And they said, oh, by the way, what does your name mean? <laughs> and it was so, Im- I remember it, so, it was so embarrassing. I said, it means friend of friendship. It doesn't mean... Why? Gr- who's, who's asking? <laughs> yeah, that's right. It, it doesn't mean grumpy old sod, which is what I'm being at the moment, yeah. you know. Um, so it's almost as if the name represents the name you'd be given if you were a Buddha. Right. If it not mean. You would be always a complete embodiment of friendship that would be fantastic, wouldn't it? I am not that. I am so... (laughs) I'm so not that. Um, But I've got something of that in me. You can can sort of see why I'm called that, but there's lots to do to be an embodiment of that in all conditions at all times. To see if you could just... Even that really friendly... If you could be friendly to everyone you meet at all times, in any condition, and remember our conditions are very propitious at the moment and they, they might not continue like that, they might... You know, heaven knows what's going to happen. I was reading just yesterday about climate change, and you know, it's really very really terrifying. If you just read it about, you know, forest fires in America and uh, sea life. But if you could be friendly in all conditions, you would effectively be a Buddha. You know, so the name represents who you could be if you were enlightened, and it becomes a path in itself. And who gives you the name? The, the person who gives you a name is is your preceptor, the person that ordains you. So they know you very well. You, you don't choose your name. It's given to you. It's, saying, it's like me saying, Steve, I know you're." that's the name you were given at birth, but nobody knew you then. Uh, nobody knew what Steve Whiteley was and what, what, what values and qualities and meanings were already there and which will eventually become the values and qualities and meanings of, of, of enlightenment. But now I see them and they're, they're actu- you're actually called this. This is your real name. Right. So when I was given my name, it's like, oh, gosh, that's, that's my name. That's my real name.
0: OK, so you get given this name and you have to remind me, what was your name prior to? My name was Ian Johnson. Ian Johnson, right. <laughs> so much I- less
1: impressive sounding. So <clears throat> I went from
0: Ian, three letters, to 13
1: letters. You know. Right, yeah.
0: <laughs> so that must have been uh, quite tricky when you had to get your new direct debit cards done. <laughs> yeah and my father used to always call me by all of my brother's
1: name before he got to me so he'd say Peter Robert Johnny Ian because he could never remember anyone then so the idea of trying to get my father to go from Peter Robert Johnny Ian to Mitro Banding was
0: undoable Sis, I was going to ask you you go from being Ian yeah. to Mitro Banding. so you, you know, you turn up a couple of days later in the pub I don't know you might not have gone to the pub but you go to the pub with your mates I did, I used to go to the pub I used to go to the pub <laughs> alright uh, everyone we're, we're, it's my round what do you want? John? Bill? <laughs> Ian? Uh sorry. I'm no longer Ian. Yeah, I'm yeah. Mitra Bandu. Yeah,
1: yeah.
0: What's that, mate? Because I've I've thought about this before. Yeah, if I yeah. was to, if I change my name, I I people would just be like, No, you're Steve. I'm yeah, calling you nice. Steve. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Why would I call you Mitra, what? Yeah, yeah. How how I mean, especially then, what, what was this? In the nineteen I was doing so, in nineteen ninety. Right, nineteen ninety. Okay, yeah. so How did people react? How did your friends and family react? Did they take you seriously? Did they agree to call you by mantra? mantra What was that process like?
1: I mean, most of my friends by then were already Buddhists, so they kind of accepted that. I mean, my my mother and my my, my father, I didn't even try to get them to call me by my name.
0: Um, What did your father think of you getting into Buddhism?
1: Well, I come from a very English family, so they never say anything. Uh, But my father said, uh, it's all right, you know, as long as you're not becoming a monk. And I said, no, oh, no, don't worry, we don't do that stuff. And then I got back from the ordination retreat, and I was where on the ordination retreat, wear robes and you shave your head. I do, So I, I suddenly can. came back with all these pictures of me looking like a monk. My mother can still, 30 years later, not spell it. Um, my brothers, i got three brothers and a sister, they go, uh, hi there, sorry, mate. never uh, quite, uh, it's always very approximate. Gary, who's my partner, if I want a better term, he... He said, I am not going to call you by your name. I remember saying, well, that's up to you. I can't make you do anything, but I'm not going to answer anything else. I won't answer that name. If you call me that, I won't answer it. Um He very, I mean, weirdly, people rarely use your name. Names are kind of formal, aren't they? It's very, when you get to know someone, you don't use their name very much. Um, but yeah, some people didn't like it. Uh, and even now, some people don't take it seriously. When I first... When I came to publish my first book of poetry, it was a bit of a question. Do I publish? Well, for some people, it wasn't that much of a question for me, but do I publish under my English name or my Buddhist name? Now, I think of my Buddhist name as not my Buddhist name, but my name. I don't. Like, it's funny you mentioning Ian. It doesn't ring any bells for me now. Um, I've, I've been called Mitra Banda longer than I was called Ian. But if I publish as Ian Johnson, or I, you know, then that's creating two cells almost. But I remember in the review, some people were quite sort of sniffy about my name and say, oh, well, and make a bit, you know, we'd call the angels. I didn't like that. It, but in Buddhist tradition, it's quite rude to use your previous name because it sort of denied something in you in the most important thing about me. And I have had people occasionally rude about that. In our age of political correctness, that happens much less. And perhaps it almost would be better if people were rude about it because at least it starts a conversation. But yeah, at first, people, some people were a bit sniffy about it. Not my family, they were very good. And and Gary, bless him, he was... You know, you can imagine, he'd met me when we were, we were 24, when we met, before I was a Buddhist. You know, so he saw me got more and more involved in Buddhism. and It must have felt to like him like, you know, it's fine to meditate and even go on retreat, that's reasonable. But to go on a four-month retreat and come back with another name, that's like, that's going too far. Partly it was it fear of his that I'd come back and I'd be someone else this weird spiritual person that you never didn't know, you know.
0: And were you someone else when you
1: came back? Not really. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's weird ordination because you come back and you're weirdly very much the guy that you were when you left. But something has changed in a way that it's very difficult to quantify. It's like right at the heart of you, there's a tiny little cog and it's moved slightly to the left. And that tiny little cog is connected with some other tiny little cogs which are connected with other bigger cogs which are connected with other bigger that's the t- this the change because ordination isn't it's like a sacrament it's like a, a a magical rite. it's not it's not a secular thing it's like something in you is change one bit to the left and that gradually affects the whole organism if you keep orientating yourself and dedicating yourself to the dharma because de- which which is the dharma just means the truth mm.
0: whatever that means okay back to the chat what is, what's what's the dharma someone that hasn't heard of that before
1: yeah i mean it sounds like a curry doesn't it um <laughs> the dharma means it's got lots of meanings but it's got two primary reasons one is how things actually are the truth capital t the the, the true nature of reality beyond words and so feel like we're going into concepts. matrix territory yeah right? no it is a bit like that except for matrix is a wholly ne- their, their idea of true nature reality is wholly negative. A matrix is massively affected by, influenced by Buddhism, except for that they've made the true nature of reality a negative thing. They've got something right about the delusion of ordinary life, but the true nature of reality is nothing remotely negative. You can't say anything about it. It's beyond words and concepts. Um, so Buddhism is saying there is, there is a real meaning to life, but it's not a meaning you can ever encapsulate in words, but you can experience it. Words but like can point
0: Don't you think they're like, from a cynic's perspective, they're like, well, you know, you're not giving me much to go on then. No, no, indeed. Um, well, you start with, I, I, I like the relationship,
1: with the true nature of reality is one, but it's also, all the Dharma means all those ways that take you to the true nature of reality. And it also connects with telling the truth.
0: So the first thing, that's why I went, started with so is, is, so is so is is Dharma what is it? Is that is that written? are we talking about written texts?
1: No, not primarily. Although it's often presented as written, written texts. Okay. It's more like you know, people often say the Dharma, they often mean what we call Buddhism. There's no word in Buddhism that means Buddhism. That that's a modern Western word, you know, like Marxism and so on. Yeah. And it makes it sound like Buddhism is another ideology, another theory, like Marxism or feminism or um, other theory, theories, Buddhism isn't primarily a theory and absolutely not an ideology. It's, it's more like a, an applied philosophy. You know, you, it's not that difficult in the sense of applying it because you think, golly, you know, when I am in a bad mood, if I'm in a hateful mental state, if I'm in a sort of um, critical, hateful mental state, if I act out of that, if I get an email that's antsy, that's so easy to get, and if I send an antsy back one back, Guess what? It makes matters worse. Mm. You don't need to be Plato to see that. You know, you try it, you know, today, getting a nasty email from them, just send it back with a nasty one, a bit of sarcasm and CC a few other people. Just see whether it works. And you might say, well, that doesn't matter, but it will make your life worse immediately. You try and get people to work with you and be dictatorial and uh, harsh. They might do what you say, but they'll resent you. And uh, that won't be in your interest. And they'll snipe behind your back. And they probably won't do as good a job. If you're going to get people to work with you effectively, they need to love you. They need to want to serve you because you're a good guy or you're a good woman. They trust you. That is so much in your interest. So the dharma is that. Do you see what I mean? That if I act out of negative states of mind, it is not in my interests. It will not work. It will make my life worse. One of the things you're trying to learn in life is that you don't know whether you can make it better, but you definitely know you can make it worse. You can make it worse straight away. You know, like I was thinking about those guys, the boys in the cave. I was asked to talk on radio. In Thailand. In Thailand, the boys in the cave in Thailand. Mm. And, and, you know, they were saying they were meditating. You know, that was what the word was, wasn't it? Um, And they... Radio 4 interviewing me saying they can't really meditate there, can they? I said, absolutely they can. Because what those boys know, and they know it in a horrible, terrifying way that I hope you and I and our listeners, as it were, never know, is that this is a terrible situation. All I know about it is I can make this a million times worse now. All I need to think is, oh my God, I'm going to die. Or I've got to get out of here. I've immediately made a bad, a terrible situation 100 times worse. Now you don't know, you know that you can't float through the rock. You know that you can't miraculously appear on the other side. So you don't know whether you can make it better, but you do know you can make it worse. And where do you make it worse? You make it worse in your mind. And you can make it worse by a tiny thought like, I've got to fight my way out of this and I, I'll kill other people to do that. You make it a million times worse then. So, do you see how that's the Dharma? It's not a subject out there, although you need help from out there. You need as help, much help as possible because all you need to do is be criticized and you can make that experience worse. And you'll feel very compelled to make that experience worse. And you'll think, I'll just blame you and have a go at you. And that'll sort it. it never does because it comes, things come back to haunt you. So, the Dharma is trying to learn the lessons that your life is teaching you. And it's teaching you all the time. Mm-hmm. All you need to do is be a bit generous to people and suddenly you've made life better. Like you have actually made life better. Not in some theoretical no, not in a dreadful banner holding, you know, slogan shouting way. You've made the bit of life that you've got some kind of purchase on, you've made it a bit better. And that can just be in a shop and that can be, you know, a friend listening a bit more. You, you've you got every power to make your life a hundred times worse now and you've got some powers to make it better, not as much powers as you think. And sloganeering and opinionating on Facebook and, you know, pontificating about Brexit probably does ne- next to nothing. In fact, I think it makes things worse. One of the things we should do about people like Trump is just ignore it. We can't do much about that. But we can, we can help a friend be at, by actually trying to talk sensibly, by being generous, and by not making things worse in our mind, by, by pontificating. Which is slightly what
0: I'm doing just now. <laughs> okay, so to bring it back to the theme of this podcast, because oh, yeah. I haven't, uh, we haven't even <laughs> we got haven't touched, onto that yet. Touch on the theme. <laughs> um, so you, you were talking earlier about how you decided you were going to commit your life to Buddhism, but then you obviously decided to get into poetry and you became a published poet.
1: Yeah, that was it might have been a mistake.
0: <laughs> anyway, carry on. So, on that basis. If you've decided to commit yourself fully to something and then you've got this big sort of creative career as well, you've got a creative pastime as well, which takes up a lot of headspace and time, how do you how do you balance that? Or I or I'm gonna rephrase the question. How would you like to uh, or how do you like to approach this idea of uh, this theme of balance right, within yeah. within your life and what you do with Buddhism and, and poetry? And- yeah,
1: yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. I was thinking about this idea of balance. I don't know that I like it. I see what it's getting at, but I think the, the metaphor is unhelpful. Because the metaphor of balance is that you balance everything, and then you sort of still. You know what I mean? That's the metaphor of balance, is you do a bit of that, you do a bit of that, and you get it so that your life is balanced and still. It's not very active. It's not very dynamic. People can think that Buddhism and meditation and all that are about living a balanced life. I'm not I'm not, it's not a Buddhist idea. There's no, I can't think of anything in Buddhism that's talking about living a balanced life. There's equanimity, but that's, that's a wholly other thing, which is much more like yeah, a kind of... It's, 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 an expre- it's a wisdom expression. But, so what I'd think more is... Um, what would I think? I'd think something more along the lines of how do you live a, a fully meaningful and fulfilling life, fulfilling for you and meaningful and fulfilling for those around you, now, you don't do that by just j- just sort of driving yourself all the time with your ambitions. Ambition is a, is a bit of a koan, I think, but you don't just do it by driving yourself. But neither do you do it by trying to get balance, I don't think. I think what you try to do is try to turn your whole life into something in which you can discover meaning and value.
0: Um, so on that basis, through Buddhism, you discovered poetry... Or was poet or you sort of writing poetry prior to Buddhism?
1: Yeah, well with poetry I always wrote poetry, um, since I was a boy, you know. Um you know, and they were mostly poetry, you know, like I am unhappy, a blackbird is singing, or A Blackbird is singing and I am unhappy. You know, there were sort of the usual kind of um slightly indulgent um things about being unhappy. And I was very unhappy as a boy and as a young man. So, you know, then I went to art school and it was, I I seemed to need a directly creative aspect of my life. I don't necessarily think I should need that, or that it's a good idea for me to need that. It would be better if I was wholly committed to the Buddha Dharma in the sense of its primary expressions of friendship, meditation, going on retreats, studying the Dharma, uh, teaching the Dharma. It would be better if I was wholly committed to that. I'm afraid I don't seem to be able to do that. I need to have a creative life. And for a long time I was really struggling with that. I used to live in the community and paint in my room I was an artist in residence for a while. Um, I tried to write books on art and Buddhism, which was rubbish, it was a rubbish book and I had to sort of stop it. And then I started writing poetry. Um, and yeah, poetry is weirdly, I mean, I, I wouldn't recommend anyone to write poetry. It's a, nobody reads the wretched stuff. Um, uh, you know, <laughs> lots of people are writing poetry, more people are writing it than ever before in history. Um, most of it's terrible. Uh, those people who write it don't necessarily read it. Uh, it's a mad form. I wouldn't recommend
0: it. What well, would you recommend uh, creating a stand-up act? I think a, that, a parody yeah, of a spoken word artist. I, would,
1: yes. <laughs> I think that would be a much better thing to do. Um, but you don't necessarily have a choice, do you? Creativity is a weird thing. You don't think, mm, I think I'll be a concert pianist. I, don't, I think I'll be a figure state skater. It just comes out of you. It's, sort of, it's, sort of, it's a bit like one's potential. It, there's seeds for it. And there's seeds for certain things and there's seed, not seeds for other things. A friend of mine wanted, thought he was a, a writer. It's just not him. And he tried to be a writer for a long time and he wasn't him.
0: Um, how, is it, how would he know that's not for him?
1: Usually because you realise the writing isn't very good.
0: Right. Um,
1: and that it's an idea. A lot of what we think about ourselves is just ideas. So it's weird with poetry because I read poems a lot. You know, when, Buddhism is more like a creative pursuit. If you were to say, what is Buddhism like? Uh, never mind Buddhism. What is, what's it like in, in the world that I live in? Is it like religion? I'd say, no, not really. It's not, if, you're, if you've had a Catholic church experience, if you've been a Muslim, it's not very much like that. If you said, I, I've been painting every day in the studio, I'd say, yeah, it's a bit like that, yeah. It's much more like an artistic pursuit than a religious one, in the sense that it's got that same commitment, that same, I've just got to do this, It's got that same, and actually that's what I want to do, that same push driving forward to creating something that hasn't yet been created. Wallace Stevens, a great American poet, he said something about creating that which hasn't yet been made, the maker of the unmade thing. You're trying to create something. I mean, Nietzsche said that creativity is you're a God maker. You're trying to create worlds like God. God is the great artist, (laughs) He creates a world, and he, I think he's an image for the artist, almost. So I'm a god? Um, can I, yes. Can I... I can, I can legitimately, I can legitimately yeah. say I'm a god? <laughs> well, you, only in certain circles. Um, <laughs> um, and As long as we've got a bit of comedy in that idea of god. But you see that a god who creates, metaphorically, creates the universe. An artist creates a, a, their own sort of universe. And it seems to be something that's there. I've, I've always struggled with being a creative type. And I don't really believe in that. People get very sentimental about that and give themselves all kinds of excuses. Like it's really well known that male poets can't drive. You know, it's very easy to act up to being a creative or I can't do anything practical. Don't expect me to be sensible. I need to be a sort of creative. But I dislike all that. I think it's it's showing off. I, I think one should be as little creative as possible in that way. Genuine creativity is... You just have to do it. And I struggled with that for a long time because I think I should have committed myself wholly to Buddhism. So I then started writing poetry, and it, 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 it just so it so is what I am in a certain sort of way. I'm, but I'm definitely a Buddhist poet. No, I'm not a, I'm not a poet. poet. Saying someone's a poet is like saying they're a saint. To be a real poet is, is, is unthinkable, almost like to say being a real Buddhist is almost unthinkable. <laughs> they're the same kind of thing. But their intention with each other mainly because of my ambition
0: so the two so one feeds into the other, so in terms of like this idea of balance which you're not sure is a is, is a term that you agree with in a sense there is something there where you're by being a Buddhist and having that practice feeds into being a poet I mean being without Buddhist, one can you couldn't necessarily have the other
1: yes that's right um without I wouldn't have nothing to say if I was a Buddhist. If I wasn't a Buddhist, but when I say Buddhist, I don't mean signed up to a particular. Thing. Do you see how that sounds like?
0: Sure. I'm
1: a member of this club, the yeah. Buddhisty club, and I write Buddhisty stuff that has these Buddhisty things, yeah. like spiritual. You know, like I'll say spiritual things. I can't bear spiritual things. If people come to me with being spiritual, it makes me want to run a mile. People say they're a spiritual person. I want to run off screaming. I'd rather someone say, "Tell you what, I'm. I just. I'm just man. I'm, I'm a nightmare." You know, I don't know what to do with myself. And I think, oh, now we're talking. Yeah. That's probably true. I can, we can work with that. Someone says, I'm a spiritual person. I think you're not a trustworthy person. You <laughs> don't know yourself. <laughs> this is a
0: pyramid scheme. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. Um, you don't know yourself. You know. So it's not that I necessarily... I have written explicitly Buddhist poems. Um, but it's more like Buddhism is about attending very deeply to your experience. It's not about trying to have a Buddhist experience. It's about really attending to your experience and seeing the meaning within experience. So I try to express that as much as I can through, through poetry. The problem with poetry is that it also has invoked my ambition. So, you know, I want to be published. You know, I want people to like the poems. I want to, somebody, somewhere to read the wretched things. <laughs> yeah. You know, I'm not What's writing for that, myself. Though? Well, there's something always a bit point missing about ambition. It's a bit ugly, really, ambition. Um,
0: but, but if we think about, OK, like a lot of... I don't know, if you think about so many... Famous people who have mm. gone on to achieve great things that have changed the world. Let's say for better rather than worse. Well, without having that ambition, they wouldn't. Them and their ideas and their products or services wouldn't be in existence. So, no,
1: indeed. No, you either say the answer to that is look, there's something. It's often a compensation ambition, you know, like great poets like uh, Robert Frost, the American poet. You know, probably you know a a, mo- a modern poet. You know, modern being, he died in the 1970s something like that. A great modern poet, massively ambitious, and it was a lot to do with a very very difficult start in life, a very poor start. Uh, his father died when he was young. Um, Elizabeth Bishop, a great modern poet, her father was meant died when she was a baby. Her father was men- Her mother was put in, a, in in an asylum. Ambition is often a compensation for lack of. Happiness and lack of of fulfillment. So that's one way of thinking about another way of thinking about fine, be ambitious, but be more ambitious. So be ambitious for your work, but also be ambitious for your relationships, be ambitious for your friendships, be ambitious for your
0: meditation. So balance. In a sense, in a sense, but you see, sense, but you see how, I'm not pushing the balance no, agenda. No. Balance, I'm just playing devil, devil's yeah, advocate. Yeah.
1: But balance feels too. I don't. I think balance will worry you. Right. It'll make you As feel in like
0: you've got to, something
1: you've always got to attain for. Yeah. You're, oh, oh my got, God. Yeah. I'm going a bit too far this way. Yeah. Sure. It's slightly worrying because it's even balance itself is slightly precarious. Yeah. But it'd be better thing think ambition. Great. So be ambitious about your work. But then you know that friendship you had. You're just moaning about trump that's just utterly pointless use of your time mm. you're not actually going to be a found to affect the american administration so how about you say to your friend can we actually stop doing this i don't can because you, your relationship's falling apart at the moment can we actually talk genuinely mm. R- rather than do that thing mm. or you know that time when you joke a lot but it starts to be like just a habit it's not I like joking. I, the more joking, the better. But you know when you're stuck in it, where you can't be anything else? So be more ambitious about that.
0: So Less, less Buddhist banter.
1: Less Buddhist banter, yeah. <laughs> I mean, Buddhists can be dreadfully over-earnest and <laughs> super serious and um, touchy-feely and kind of, you know, knit-your-own-yoghurt types. You know, um, I can't bear any of that. But I, you want to live a properly grown-up, serious life. Now, I think that's better a better metaphor than being balanced. <laughs>
0: But when we're saying serious, yeah. we're not, you not sort of... Because as cause you've just said, sort of, Buddhists can be over earnest. So we're not talking yeah. about taking and treating everything seriously and acting in a serious way. No, no. Because yeah. you, are, you know, are very amiable, sort of... What like to believe? <laughs> yeah, you know, I like to crack a joke. <laughs> yeah, yeah,
1: yeah, it's funny because my poems are very sad. And I sometimes say, actually, I'm quite funny in life, but my poems generally are very sad. But ser- by serious, I'm, I mean my own teacher, Sangarachita Bante, Sangarachita, he said, you can't be serious if you want to be serious. Really good way of putting it. In other words, if you want to be serious in the right way, you can't be serious in the wrong way. Being po-faced, being pompous, being super serious, being over earnest that's not really serious. Having a laugh, being able to play, having a sense of humour, not taking yourself too seriously, that's very serious. Not having a sense of humour is a massive human failing. It's not a small thing. They once said about Margaret, the only thing that... Margaret Thatcher's supporters would criticise her for it. She didn't have a sense of humour. And people never they thought, well, just, you know, who needs it? It's a massive human failing if you haven't got a sense of humour. You need to go out and get one because it means that you're, there's something uh, damaged about you. Life requires you urgently to have a sense of humour. Laugh um, at yourself. Laugh <laughs> at yourself. As well laugh as at the absurdity you. of other people. Yeah. Uh, also, ridicule is it's not... There's a value in ridiculing things you know, you have to be careful with it, of course, and it's not something I can do very easily, but, you know, something should be ridiculed. If someone's acting like a fool, they should see that they're acting like a fool. Mm. You know, so all of those things are part of being serious. By serious, I mean grown up, really. Mm. You're going to die, for heaven's sake. You know, you're in a very serious situation. You can't be having pompous conversations and over earnest conversations. Neither can you be stuck in trivial things that aren't actually funny. Mm. I love a good laugh. But you know that time sometimes you think... It's actually not funny. It's just not funny. Is that, um,
0: is that what you felt when uh, I moved in? When you, what were your thoughts when uh, when you knew that sort of a comedian was going to be moving into your your community? Well, you're the second comedian I've met. The first comedian comedian I've met was far funnier than you. No, no,
1: no like he didn't seem to have a sense of humour. Really, it's really weird. Mm. He said, "I am a standard I thought, "Yeah, but I'd expect <laughs> I'd expect."
0: A few gags. <laughs> and that man was Mickey Flanagan. <laughs> I
1: mean, he didn't... And it's quite... I was talking to Colm Toybert and I interviewed him. Wonderful writer. You know, lit, you know, do read his novels and he's very funny when you interview him. Very, very funny. Okay. Um, uh, his novels aren't particularly at all. He's very... In fact, the novels tend to be quite sad. And he was saying, yeah, wonder, I can't do the Irish accent, but he's saying, you know, I know this novelist. He writes really funny novels. He's really boring as a person. Right. It's very sort of odd. Mm. You were the first... Uh, comedian, they were actually funny. But the thing that struck me about you is that you're not, you're not condemned to being funny. If you have to be funny, you can't be funny. Funny is weird, isn't it? Sense of humour has to. It's best when it's stumbled upon and enjoyed. I'd hate to have to be funny. I think when you're doing your stand up routines, it's terribly stressful because you have to be funny. Because a stand up comedian lives and dies on a laugh. A poem doesn't have to get a laugh. Uh, I mean, it's just as well because most poems. I mean, most poems wouldn't know a joke if it fell on them. Mm. Uh, one of the things that's missing from poetry is, j- is jokes. I, weirdly, I can't seem to write them in in poems, but um, you can be serious and not serious. And I think partly that's why, you know, Buddhism has touched you is because you, it's interesting talking about Colin Toybin there, the novelist. He said to me afterwards, I interviewed him for Poetry East, and he said, most places I go, I can either be serious or I can be funny, but I can't be both. Mm-hmm. Often if you're funny, people think, oh, you're a funny guy. Uh, so that you're, that's that kind of guy you are. I don't want to be that guy. Or you're, or you're the serious spiritual guy, so let's do that. You want more than that, you know. And he said this is the first place he's been interviewed where he felt he could be both, where he could have a laugh and everybody enjoys it, and he can move straight from that to say, but this is dead serious. Mm. That's a grown-up attitude, you know what I mean? Mm. Um, nobody wants to be pigeonholed. I don't want to be funny, you don't want to be the funny guy, nor do you want to be the super serious, now now I've got spiritual, vegan, knit your own, you know, frappuccino type, you know. Mm. You want to be everything, don't you? You want to completely express every part of you, not be condemned. If you don't do that, you get condemned to one part of you.
0: Yeah, I guess in these, you know, Instagram times, people... Have a speciality. Let's say you're a wellness coach or something like that. Yeah. They're going to be very consistent with a certain segment of their personality they're putting yeah. out there because it's part of their branding. Yeah. And um, ideally, that will bring in business for them. I, yeah. I, mean, I know that's only sort of a certain facet of, of, of looking upon this. So I can imagine the pressures are on for them. And, and there are, you know, there are lots of stories now coming out of these Instagrammers who are sort of like in their early twenties who have been on Instagram, putting forth this incredible lifestyle, this fake projection of their life, mm. and have got to a point where they've had a nervous breakdown. They I said, bet, yeah. they can't keep up this pressure. They're living a lie. And yeah. they've deleted their whole account. You know, and they were earning like loads of money from brand endorsements, yeah, etc. Right. But they've just got to a point where they're like, no, this isn't yeah. who I am. I can't do this. It's a real danger. You
1: cannot condemn yourself to a part of yourself. Otherwise, you have to live up to it all the time. You know like like for my you know I'm gay Do you use that awful word I don't think <laughs> i'm fifty seven who cares you know, um, <laughs> being gay is a young person' you know I, I resigned from being gay publicly when I was thirty five I think you know um, I
0: remember reading the press release, yeah yeah, it was very
1: important you know who cares you know it's like having curly hair you know you can make you know it's only like having freckles, you know what's the big deal you know it's neither a problem nor is a it's not a virtue you're not you know gay men aren't an endangered species um uh, quite quite the contrary, but if i I, when I was young, I thought once I come out as gay, because it was very difficult for me. I was this was in the 70s in a small town, uh, 70s and 80s. If I come out, then I'll be happy. You know, mm. finally I'll be able to be myself. And I wasn't happy coming out. I don't want to be gay. You know, mm. I'm not gay. That's not. I don't walk down the pavement thinking I am a gay man walking down. Who gives a monkey? I just. Don't, I don't want to pretend that I'm not. I don't want to, you know, make a problem out of it because it's not a problem. But it's not my life. It's mm. not my life's work. It would be like saying my life's work is to have, you know, curly hair. And if you're not careful with all these branding things, you're effectively saying that's who I am. Mm. And you are not that. And if you do that, you will hurt yourself. And you'll probably, if you hurt yourself, you tend to hurt other people almost inevitably. You never keep it to yourself. So if you're nasty to yourself in your mind, bet you don't keep it to yourself. You know, you'll withdraw from your friends. you'll You'll mess up your relationships. You won't be a good parent. So... This tendency in modern life to be branded, even as a spiritual, you know, I could be branded as Mr. Buddhist Spiritual or Mr. Poet or that sort of thing, or, you know, these Instagram that you talk about. You, that is not a good idea. You are much more than that. And you will suffer if you don't let your life grow to being more than that.
0: Interesting. Just going back to you saying before about you know, coming out to your family, I can just imagine you uh, sort of having a family meeting. These guys um, just need to uh, let you all know, uh, I'm gay okay right and I'm also a Buddhist what <laughs> yeah, <indeed. laughs> much more shocking than being gay <laughs> um, um, anyone that wants to find out more about you or find out about because obviously I know you you teach a load of courses yeah, at the yeah. London Buddha Centre yeah. where's the best uh, place to find out info on your on, on, guests on you as a poet and then also the courses that you teach at the London Buddha Centre I mean the the important
1: thing I, what I would do is just go straight to the London Buddhist Centre website um which uh, is lbc i don't know it's something is it, isn't it <laughs> I I never look at, yeah lbc.org.uk okay. of course lbc.org.uk that's the best place and that's in Bethnal Green Bethnal Green East End just just down from the Bethnal Green tube uh, look at our YouTube uh, channel the London Buddhist Centre YouTube channel there's lots of um me teaching meditation and so on I mean I'm only one of the teachers here you know so let's not over-egg me but, yeah, that's the main thing. I, I, my, book, my poetry books are published through Blood Act, so you can look at that. Yeah, just, yeah, mainly just come to the London Buddhist Centre. Come along Wednesday night. I teach on a Wednesday night. OK,
0: fantastic. Say, say hello, you know. Great. much bandy. Thank you very much. Good, thank
1: you, Steve. Thank you.
0: That's great. Perfect. So there we go. That was Ordained Buddhist Poet. Mike trabandu Hopefully you've come away from that conversation feeling more calm and centered. But yeah, if you are creative and you haven't tried meditation before, then maybe that will give you some inspiration to give it a go. As I said at the beginning of the episode, meditation has done loads for me in terms of opening a gateway to access Uh, new levels of creativity, I guess. And I think it's, you know, all to do with quieting your mind. We're so distracted by everything, really, but, you know, social media, phones, whatever. It's a constant stream of distraction. So having some quiet time just to notice the patterns of thought in your mind and being able to be aware of them but not get sucked into them is very important. Yes, obviously, meditation is one aspect, but, you know, spirituality as a whole is more of a, a general term. I guess it means different things to different people. But for me, getting into Buddhism has definitely made my life richer. I think with all these things, whatever spiritual path you take, they all lead to the same destination, as it were. And that is enlightenment. Yes, that's right. What I'm saying to you people is that I am an enlightened being. And that's why you're listening to the podcast, because you're like, oh, yeah, uh, Steve's enlightened. I want to hear what he's got to say. Right. Am I right? obviously i'm not enlightened i am far from enlightened i am a fallible human being uh, who makes lots of mistakes and has many flaws in his life such as deciding to do this podcast without realizing what a shitload of work it would be no but it's it's been a, it's been a great experience i'm uh, has been no, genuinely has been a great experience in this podcast getting to talk with people like maitravandu and having those kind of deep conversations that's bliss to me Anyway, I will stop there before I ramble on any further. If you like the episode of the conversation, please do subscribe to Balancing Acts and like us and share the episode. All of that jazz really helps getting out there and then hopefully I can continue to converse with other people that are far more inspirational than me so you can benefit from it as well as me. We all benefit from it and become exceptionally balanced human beings. Okay, uh, that's it for me. Until uh, next time, all that remains to be said is uh, namaste very much.